0: Awesome. Well, Nikki, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
0: So Nikki Lindgren, did I pronounce that right? You sure did. Awesome. Founder of Pannock. Uh, oh, How do you pronounce yeah.
1: that? Uh, Penock. Pannock, people pronounce it both ways. I call it Pannock, but I will forgive people for saying it any way they feel like saying.
0: That's amazing. Where does the name come from?
1: Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, Pennock is actually this small town in Minnesota that I'm from. And so just, you know, starting a small boutique agency, having something that was a little more tied to my roots and felt rooted um, seemed appropriate. So it was a domain I grabbed a long time ago. And I just felt like whatever venture I was going out on, it was going to be called Pennock. So um, here we are.
0: I love it. That's a beautiful name. Thank you. So tell me a little bit more about the inception story. You know, how do you go from a small town? um, I guess, you know, I'm sure uh, a lot of people around you had very traditional career paths and life paths. Uh, And where does this whole thing around building a business start?
1: Yeah. So um, I, my town, I think it was like 500 people. And I was from unincorporated wow. Pennock I grew up on a lake called Lindgren Lake, which is my last name. It's been in the family forever. Um, and so I just knew I wanted to get out. So my parents would like take us on vacations. And I was like, like Florida, New York City, or California, somewhere like that I'm going. So I actually moved um, to San Diego about five days after I graduated high school um, in preparation for going to college. So I left the state, left the rural parts, and never really looked back. Um, And early professional career was working in-house for um, e-commerce brands or retail brands. So Pottery Barn, uh, World Market, formerly Cost Plus World Market on the furniture side, like starting their e-commerce and marketing departments. Um, And so all of that kind of led me to really understand and appreciate retail and e-commerce more specifically. Um, I spent some time agency side and then spent some time more, um, you know, Silicon Valley startups. And after that, I was like, I think I understand both sides of marketing well enough, having been the agency, having been the person in-house managing the agency. And then my skills were just, you know, growing too in the disciplines we work in today. So we ventured out and started as a little consultancy with a bunch of freelancers. And um, eventually right before the pandemic turned it into a, full-time employment opportunity for our team members
0: that's amazing did anything happen uh pre-pandemic like was it that you got enough contracts or you just decided to jump
1: yeah, um, a little bit. We're a little bit of risk takers. Like, we, you know, my husband was helping me with the number side of things and like looking at projections. And it was like basically, as soon as I got a client on retainer that was going to cover the salary of my first full time hire, it made sense to bring that person on. So we jumped as soon as we had a monthly retainer of 10K, is when I hired my first full time employee. Um, that retainer ended quite quickly, and that um, vendor ended up. Uh, not paying us in full because of the pandemic, but um, we were able to sustain and keep that employee with us long-term. And our next contract was even bigger and then bigger. And so it just ended up to be kind of a win-win situation. So we're still very boutique now. Um, We'll have 10 uh, employees here in June um, and hopefully we'll grow a little bit beyond, but really just staffing to make sure we're happy and our clients are happy.
0: That's awesome. And in terms of um, tell me a little bit about, you know, we we talked to a ton of consumer brands, specifically in the beauty space, you know, direct to consumer, um, a little bit of wellness too. how have things changed on the marketing side in the past two years? I see from I would say from the start of the pandemic until now, we're seeing a ton of, um, at least on our side, uh, a ton of brands discounting. Uh, I don't know, brand sort of hit the last three, four months, uh, a bit of a slowdown on sales. Where have you seen, you know, how have you seen that evolution, I would say, over the past two years and where are things today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that really hit all of us in the digital marketing space um, is iOS 14.5, right? So, like, that was a moment that we're still trying to recuperate from, truly, still today. And that was 2021. I can't even remember what year that was. Um, so, that was probably the big, the first big shift. Um, with that came a lot of changes in terms of media mix and where we were spending. So, I think. Uh, Before iOS 14.5, we were probably spending 70% of our budgets on Meta. And now we're down to about 50% of monthly budgets get spent on Meta, if not a little bit lower. So the diversity in terms of where you're putting your dollars and where you're seeing the return has shifted. Um,
0: So maybe it's helpful to explain exactly what that meant for the people listening. So what what changes did actually come
1: with that? Yeah, so basically by default, all users of an iPhone – were uh, opted out to being tracked for marketing purposes. And only those that actually went into settings and opted in started to get tracked or were continuing to get tracked, meaning they had more personalized advertising um, messages pointing to them and so on. And so that took a huge hit on return on ad spend, which is the main ROAS is the main metric we use for performance marketing across paid media. um, And that plummeted quite quickly. Um, and the data shows for most of our e-commerce brands, probably the brands you're working with too, like 80% or more of their customer is an iOS user. Um, so that was like the first immediate hit that was like, uh, like day over day, we were probably, um, losing from like before to after at least 30% of ROAS points. I think we had some brands that lost as much as like 70% of ROAS points, like overnight as that change went out. Um. Today, what that means really is we we have to do a little bit more old school marketing, and by that, it's like a little bit more manual. Probably AI can help us here too, but pixel data is not tracking iOS users because that was the whole point of of this um, privacy update.
0: And so this we, is their this is their behavior on their mobile browsers specifically. E-
1: exactly. Yes, and so if they're converting on mobile. Um, that's not getting picked up by the pixels. And so what this uh, and makes us do moving forward is we have to pull manual lists with our clients, probably monthly, if not quarterly, in addition to capturing the pixel data. So if we're trying to build a lookalike of customers, we can't just rely on the pixel like we could before this change occurred. Um, and so we're pulling now the pixel and a static list from a moment in time. Um, but everything's pretty much rebounded at this point. I would say most of the clients we've had since before that timeframe have hit, if not started to exceed, at least in the beauty space, the ROAS they had back before iOS 14. So it is on the up and up. Um, and then I think like we're just diversifying. So TikTok is something we're doing a lot more ad spend against. Um, Programmatic is pretty much part of our evergreen um, programs for most of our brands now. Um, and then doing a little bit more with YouTube marketing too.
0: Where have you seen, you know, is there a a division between which brands normally perform better on one channel or the other, or is it kind of across the board, um, similar patterns?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some obvious assumptions we can throw out there, and we've seen this in the data. So a more considered purchase, that's a couple thousand dollars. We work with a higher end uh, luxury jewelry brand they do well on pinterest because people, you know, pinterest has a longer look back window and people are kind of considering that purchase for longer. We've worked with makeup brands that have like $16 eyeshadow palettes. Those work well because it's like immediate touch, immediate conversion, so it doesn't really matter where you play. So there is some like logic between how considered the purchases and where they're going to show up best. Um, and oftentimes if it's a considered purchase, meta is not going to capture what the client is looking for because their look back window is only seven days. Um, what do you
0: mean by the look back window in terms of how long back can you actually understand if that customer performed that behavior?
1: Yeah. So on platform, if you're looking in like meta ads manager, the ads platform for Facebook and Instagram, Mm -hmm. um, the default look back window right now is seven days. You can't actually extend it to be longer. Um. It is just seven days. If you're using an attribution tool like Triple Whale or Wicked Reports, you can start to look at it a little bit different using their differently using their pixel. But natively in platform, it's a seven day look back. Um, Google can go up to like ninety or 180, quite quite a long look back window. Pinterest can too, programmatic. Um, and TikToks is more favorable than Meta too. But um, my team is a lot closer to pushing the buttons day over day. So I've lost a little bit of the um, deep knowledge in terms of the ins and outs of every platform.
0: And this is basically all to say that it, for a brand to understand how their dollars are performing across these different platforms. Um, exactly. That's so interesting. I, you know, um, we're, we've been talking to a lot of indie beauty brands recently. And one of the things that we've seen as a trend is going back to more traditional marketing. So uh, a really cool trend we saw—it's uh, sort of going offline—is uh, a bunch of beauty brands forming collectives. And so mm-hmm. these collectives essentially will go. You know, an interesting initiative we saw this week is they'll go into a mall and they launch a three-month pop-up store, and they'll bring in thirty or forty brands split the costs of the rental and the infrastructure and then, you know, get a pretty good return on their investment. Um, A lot of them mentioned they've been priced out of uh, advertising on meta or, you know, on Instagram basically. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're kind of seeking other non-traditional ways of, I guess more traditional in a way, but, you know, less common these days, ways of, uh, of acquiring customers. And specifically for them, I think is about lowering CAC.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. We've been working with some brands doing the same thing. And actually what I would say has been successful for us in that lane is then doing more, using paid media to be like a surround sound amplification and not like the end all be all like, this is how the business has to grow. And so where we've been working with brands that have done, um, like a brick and mortar play, even if it's a pop-up, we will do geo-targeted campaigns right in the area for their core avatar and try to get them more of that foot traffic. Um, and so a little bit less trackable, right. Especially if it's a temporary pop-up play. Um, but we have found success in like dedicating dollars to helping make sure their, their test market is successful for brick and mortar.
0: As we, what do you think is going to happen, you know, as we enter Potentially this year and next year, um, a uh, a time of lower discretionary spending uh, for some of these brands. You know, a lot of them have cut employees, have cut costs. Um, how is this changing, and how is it going to look like in a year to two years from now?
1: Yeah. Um, I wish I had that crystal ball, but I think like what, what I would say to start with is at least for our clients, we work with some med spas too, that are like helping people go get their like fillers and Botox and all of that. And like, we know that industry is like pretty bulletproof and recession proof in terms of like when people want to look good, which is literally all the time. Um, but then I think like for a traditional direct to consumer brand, we try to help use attribution tools or just you know google analytics ga4 data to understand how much of the media mix is the sales mix is coming from our channels so we can kind of help project out for them if we were to cut completely and just part ways if we were to reduce budgets um, or amplify budgets like what does that mean for your business and oftentimes what we find with those brands are like in their first couple years of existence, so much of their sales are touched by paid. And so once we start to, um, show them this in a, in a way that's comprehensive, um, they understand that like their business would be in a very different place without it. And they wouldn't only be cutting us and our agency fees, but they'd be cutting you know, a lot of their staff because it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't exist like it does today. So not to say like, we're trying to help our brands be omni-channel, right? Like we're not trying to stack brands to need need us for 90% of their sales. That's really unfavorable. Um, And that's kind of why we started um, offering SEO and affiliate marketing too, as services for us so that we can help them be less reliant on paying media or spend dollars to acquire the customer.
0: One of the common questions you mentioned, SEO, that's come up in conversations has been around the impact of AI generated text specifically in blog posts and you know all over the meta attacks of a site, how have you seen that change uh, SEO? Or like, how is yeah. that going to change SEO?
1: I know it's going to change it a lot. Um, what we recommend, and I've seen this you know dating back quite a while ago, but still in current times, is um, when content is produced by an authority figure who is an expert in the industry, Uh, and it's longer form it's not short short text Um, the performance is like night and day versus what you can do schlepping it out to a third party um, content writer or even AI bot so like I do think there are solutions already in place for determining who is AI and, and what isn't rather in terms of copy and I think that that's People are going to be able to see some arbitrage right now, but I think like long-term, those types of contents that are less qualified are going to kind of weed themselves out. So I wouldn't recommend leaning on them too heavily for that matter. I mean, I think using ChatGPT, we know it's good at certain things, but not really good at going super deep into um, content and angles for us. Um, so it's definitely evolving in like the pace everyone's doing all of their things related to SEO. The SEO we do is more related to existing on-page content and under the hood, um, you know, uh, technical and schema. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So what we're doing for our brands is we're basically looking at their website, their evergreen content, meaning like their best PDPs and so on. And we're optimizing a set of pages for them, a count of pages for them every month of their existing content. And then quarterly, we're going in and we're doing a technical audit to say like, Hey, you know, you have some latency here. Um, this particular page is loading poorly, things of that sort. Um, and then working with their dev team to execute. Similarly, like schema markup, we obviously want to have as much of their website marked up as we can. So we look, we take up even more of the surf real estate on Google, um, related to content, like we'll help the clients identify what content pieces to write about, but it's, as you know, kind of my ethos, and you know what we're looking to do as an agency, like we're not going to pretend we know the best about the most about like highly pigmented eyeshadow. We know some about that, but we're not subject matter experts. Our clients are, so we'll kind of direct them what what they should be writing about when they blog. But we're not going to produce the blog post for them because we can't with confidence say that that's what we're good at.
0: Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I you know we had an experience recently where. We were featured by WWD, which is a big, um, you know, publication and, and it was, it really made a big dent, uh, on our, on our traffic. And, uh, we've tried, you know, writing blog posts using chat GPT and we've seen very little, um, very little impact. In fact, we actually saw a, a decrease to some degree, um, correlated to the increase in volume of content. So like you were saying, there's probably ways in which, um, search engines are understanding when this content is organic versus not um i wonder what the markers are if you know obviously if a a piece of content is produced by an authority that's obvious right Uh, um but if if it's a blog post written by you know someone that doesn't have a big following like how does how does it know right what is the big delta between the way that i would write versus or a writer would write versus um the machine um i was i was you know i've been thinking about that recently and you know the other thing is like if you say you know tell me how do you do x y or z the the model spits out a bunch of like steps i wonder if those start to start to be the same for everybody and everyone's posting the same things on their sites right and it's like oh is everybody's posting the exact same thing maybe then that's that's how we understand what's generated and not
1: yeah no and and that's fair like i don't I don't, I mean, it would be a good experiment. We haven't experimented personally that much with AI for blogging, but I feel like whipping up a new domain and, you know, having a hundred percent of it be AI would be a fun experiment if we, if we had time for it, we just haven't gotten there, but to the end of like a new blogger and how would the machine know, um, or how would the spiders know, uh, I don't have clarity on that.
0: Um, where have you seen, I mean, where have you guys been using this new subset of AI tools? Uh, where have you seen it shown up and how do you think it's going to be in the next, you know, say 12 months? I'm not even going to say more than that. Like, are you guys going to continue increasing the usage or what's going to happen?
1: Yeah, I think so. The lanes we're using AI most is in the lane of, um, idea generation. So we are doing it to some extent for our organic social. We are not doing organic social for our clients. We have some team members who are have histories with it in their previous roles. So we do have some knowledge of it, but it's, you know, not our subject matter expertise. So we're, so we're using it for, for topics there. Um, we're using it for our CRM system is probably what's going to take the most of it. And specifically around, um, outbound leads and trying to get new customers just because there's a lot of, um, I think to me, like good use cases for AI in drip flows and sequencings and things like that. So we're looking at a couple solutions there. Um, video scripts we've done through chat GPT and then audio files through one of the many services out there. So like we're starting to explore in that lane, but it's mainly for Pennock marketing purposes and not so much for our clients. Um, so yeah, that's that's how we're going to start using it and then layer it into clients a little bit more as we see some success on our end.
0: Is organic reach dead?
1: Um I mean it seems like it again like I'm not I mean I, that was just a, such a blanket statement. <laughs> we're just that close to it since I'm, you know, not managing it for clients. Um yeah, we're seeing very little growth when we're not boosting things even for ourselves
0: makes sense. How does a how does a marketing agency I mean you you help you know all these direct to consumer brands um acquire new customers but I assume the mechanic is very different for um an agency than it is for a direct to consumer brand. So how do you guys think about acquisition for your own product for your own service?
1: Yeah. So to date, most of our clients have come through word of mouth, which has been wonderful, but we're trying to get you know to a level of growth that will take us beyond that. Um, so for us, what we have found success with is really partnerships. So we have a lot of sister agencies or agency friendlies that are adjacent to us in service offerings, and it's really great to collaborate with them and work on clients together. So that has been a really good source of still kind of in that referral lane, but growing that network of um, complimentary firms, I think is great and services. Um, And then beyond that, we have, you know, been running some of our own ads um, and we have been working with a sales team to help us qualify our leads. We tried doing um, lead generation on our own just through, you know, more traditional sales models, because our team is not a team of sales professionals. We kind of wasted more hours there than I'd like to admit. And we've moved on and just outsourced to that.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. There's so many, um, I feel like every week I get at least three to four messages on LinkedIn, um, from a, a cold outreach or a lead generation service.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was very same. I still get them. And I was very delayed in biting the bullet. Um, and we ended up going with a more premium offering, but I think our um, objectives are the most aligned, even though they are more costly. So we're seeing great returns on just doing doing that end of the the relationship.
0: How has uh, how would you say your, your life has changed since you know that inception time of the agency? Uh, well, I'm sure you're doing like a thousand different things um to today when you have a small team um just scaling the business has your day-to-day changed a lot since then
1: it actually has, and it's funny because I'm still um, those employees who have left us. I've still remained um, friendly with, and so I was just talking to one last week, um, and so just reflecting on before versus now is pretty remarkable. I think like the first thing, and this goes for probably all businesses, is getting the processes in place related to like SOPs and the cadence and frequencies by which thing we do things we were kind of like half using Asana at the beginning. And then um, we moved over to Airtable and we've got a lot of automations in place now. So I feel like there's a lot more confidence today in that we're doing precisely what we tell the client we will do all of the time. So that feels really good. I think in any given month, there's like 78 tasks related to paid media health checks. um, So like that in itself is like a good number and it's fun to share that with the client so they know we will always have their back. Um, So I think systems has helped a lot. uh, And I have moved a lot out of the day to day. Like at the beginning, I was on every single client call talking half of the time, even though there was an account manager also on the call. And now we're at a place where I can join quarterly business reviews and some sort of like projection and planning conversations, but um, the team's really well equipped to manage client day to day and be the face of our brand for the client. So that's freed me up to spend about 50, 60% of my time doing things like this um, and a little bit more on the lead gen biz dev front. So it has changed a lot. but I'm not going to lie. Like I get pulled into the weeds a couple hours every single day. Um, so there's still a little bit more growth to come.
0: I feel like that's always inevitable. Like the dream is you get to step back and and watch the machine work, but the reality is that businesses are such complex things that you're always in there, um, putting out some sort of fire.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. Um,
0: it's so interesting. You touched on the SOPs, which by the way is, um, standard operating procedures. Um, that's one of the first things we did when we started building the company. And I feel like we've been ripping the benefits and, uh, of that for a long time, especially around onboarding uh, new people into the business and understanding processes. Have, what has been the impact you've seen from building those SOPs and do you have any tips in terms of how to do it effectively or how, you know what you've done or you've learned um, as you've building them over the years?
1: Yeah, um, I have. I actually just had a conversation. I'm in a mastermind for other agency owners. And one of the recent topics was around best practices for SOPs. And I think there's a couple like heavy hitting things that I would have maybe missed. And so um, the way it was described to me in my last conversation with the mastermind was the title, like you're going to save the SOP with a certain naming convention, right? But title the document with a, how do I do X, Y, and Z? So that as someone's in your drive on your team searching for it, like they can search for it like they would, um, on Google. Uh, So that's been one thing. And then I think the list of resources that one needs to have open or available to complete the task um, is also important. And we just totally overlooked it. So if we were hiring a um, entry-level coordinator and asking them to follow these instructions, like they didn't even know what tools to have open or, Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So we're just kind of going back and putting the finessing touches on stuff. Um, We did just hire a team member and it's been great to have all of the SOPs ready for her in one doc, like one document with all the links out. Um, And I think it has helped onboarding a lot. Like the questions she's asking, I mean, she's rock star either way, but like the questions she's asking are a lot more intelligent than I think questions were with earlier hires when we weren't as organized because it was more like, I can't make sense of right or left, up or down. Like, what do I do next? And these questions are a lot more pointed and um, aligned with her being, us being clear that she's understanding what to do and she just has some final questions.
0: I love that. I, you know, it's interesting because Going into, I've seen a couple of um, SOPs for other businesses and like going into there is like going into the guts of how the business works. You can see so much about the business personality on how those SOPs are built, how they're organized, how they link out to other pages, like you were saying, how the pages are entitled. Um, I wonder like, have you ever seen anyone building a product for this? Because I imagine like, you know, you have a creative agency, you have a marketing agency. So many of the processes are probably similar so why hasn't anyone built a product that helped us do this
1: yeah there is actually we subscribe to something and we're terrible users of it so i can't really give them too much um i I can't promote them too heavily because we're um, terrible users of the product but click-minded does just that for agencies and so it's a list of they probably have like 300 sops that go really into the weeds of different part of like agency work um Some of which we've augmented for ourselves a lot, you know, slightly tangent to what we're doing. So it didn't make as much sense, but that's the only source that I know of, like kind of making that SOP log. We're trying to be a little bit more um, transparent and educational focused on our website and, you know, with the the details we're putting out there. Um, Just because now, you know, we know firsthand how hard it is to create an agency and build the team and find the clients and all of that. So like I'm less worried these days about, you know more agencies coming in to compete with me even though they're you know there's like 19,000 in our lane right now in the us alone um but we're we're just trying to be a little bit more transparent with what we do so we can show our prospects like our documentation and they can get comfortable with us up front
0: let's talk a little bit about the you know the commodity aspect of being an agency right you're saying there's like 100,000, 150,000 agencies in the U.S. at any given point, um, you know, most of the times you are selling a a commodity product delivered in a special way. Um, How does an agency stand out from the crowd today? Um, How does it stand out at the, I would say, at the top of the funnel? And how does it stand out at the middle of the funnel once the conversation has been started with the client?
1: Yeah. Um, let's see, that's a really good question. And I might need a minute to answer it. So, I mean, I've been on both sides of the fence here. So, you know, everyone was telling me like, you have to niche super hard, just get crystal clear on the type of clients you work with. Um, And the reason why it was really hard for us to get there is because as a new agency responsible for payroll and benefits and all that, I'm like, I just need a client. Like, if they end up being an ed tech, like, I will take them because I need dollars in today to make sure we sustain. Um, And so we've now niched down. We'll probably niche down again even further. Right now we're in beauty we're in fashion, and we're in home decor. So there's a lot of overlap and similarities in that uh, in that in those niches. And um, our end consumer is usually the female decision maker of the house. So from an audience targeting perspective, again, a lot of similarities. But um, where I think we're able to connect with people really quickly is in our sales process and our S- um, SVLs and stuff, we're talking through um, where the client was as he started with us. I mean, this is pretty standard stuff. It's not like other agencies are not doing this. In fact, many do it even better than we do, but like where the client was before they came to work with us and where they are after. And I think a good, a good example is like for a beauty brand of ours, they were at, 30 K a month. And after working with us for some time, they got to a million a month. So I think sharing stats like that are really kind of what we want to do to get into the emotional state. The founder CMO VP is in when connecting with them, top of funnel, middle of funnel. I think that's where we're really kind of showing them our secret sauce. And like every account has at least two people dedicated to them that are client facing that are talking through strategies and implementations with the client. So like we're super white glove. We're, very hands-on and transparent. And I think people get that from the beginning, just our strategic nature and how we're not there just to kind of like set some campaigns up and then like cross our fingers. Um, And so middle and bottom, I think we're just kind of winning them by um, showing up the way we will in a relationship with them.
0: That's incredible. I mean, it really, it's funny because we build more systems, we use more tools. Now AI is here, but yet business is still human. Right. So much of it is about relationships, yeah. about trust. Um, exactly. And it's still like that, you know, and I think in most industries, uh, despite, you know, all the advances we've had in technology, it's about people dealing with people. And if, you know, if you make me feel comfortable, if you make me trust you and, and trust your capabilities, then I'm all in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes nicely back into me continuing to convince myself to niche even further, because the more specialized you are, the more proof the individual has that you and your team really know the ins and outs of that particular vertical.
0: Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Nikki, this has been incredible. I mean, what a what a great masterclass you've given us today.
1: Oh, well, I appreciate it. It's been great to be here. I
0: so really, really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Well, I hope we can have a a, uh, a follow up a version 2 of this conversation. I feel like we have a lot of other topics we can get into. Um yeah. to understand we'll how up. this, you know, CBG brands are are going to market, are getting customers, are, you know, surviving, how they're going from an indie brand to a large brand like you were saying you know, from uh $30,000 a month to a million. Um yeah. I'd love to to have a, a follow up on this and how to scale those brands.
1: Yes, let's do it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time, Nick, and it's great to have you.
1: Yes, thank you.